0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: Getting started though this morning, uh, there is a report that was published just before Christmas. Very, I won't say, I won't be cynical enough to say it was done very sneakily, but boy, it seems like it was sort of slipped in when nobody was watching. It was published by the finance department, the federal government's finance department, two days before Christmas. Again, you know the world is watching two days before Christmas, right? I say tongue in cheek. Not not at all. Anyway, it predicts that barring any policy changes, the federal government could be on track to run annual shortfalls, financial shortfalls, until at least 2050, 2050, the year 2050. And if such a scenario does in fact play out, the report says, the federal debt could climb past, brace yourself here, one55 Trillion with a T trillion dollars by the year two thousand fifty by that same year, more than double its current level. Well, the only person we can possibly bring into chat about this a familiar voice here on CHML as he should be because he can explain these things better than the rest of us. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, how are you this evening? I'm fine, thank you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. By so the
0: way, I think Radley would be the better name. I would. Yeah. You well, know, if that the lot li- is so common, but Radley.
1: Oh. Radley I am I'm, I'm not you know or go even Bradley I'll accept Bradley even though that's not my name it's close enough I Have to pronounce it B Radley Oh yes that's true or 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 do like all the writers at the New York Times and Washington Post who who tend to be a little you know sometimes a little pompous and have your initial first so it would be uh, I don't know Marvin what your uh, what your middle name is but let's say your initial was B it would be B Marvin Ryder yeah, yeah, sure. you know just to sound more eloquent Absolutely. Let's get to this story very quickly, though, because you and I a number of times on this show have talked about deficits. We've talked about debt. We've talked about governments going into debt to pay for things to try and build for the future. But I don't recall us ever talking about numbers that start with the letter T. This sounds like it's something new.
0: Well, it it is and it isn't. So first, let me talk about the report, and then I'll talk about the letter T. Um, This report, you're right, sort of snuck in on December 23rd. It's not really a a report on anyone's policies of today. What they did in the finance department was they looked at some current trends, both uh, economically and demographically, and then they did a what-if scenario. What if these things don't change? And they looked out 40 years. So, in essence, they went from 2016 to 2056. And they said, over the next 40 years, for instance, a couple of these trends, uh, the aging of the population in 2016 something magical happened first time ever we have more people over the age of 65 than we have under the age of 15 right at the moment there's about six million of both of those but if you use the current aging rates and the current birth rates by year 2056 there's going to be 10 million people over the age of 65 and only again about six million under the age of 15. that means we've got what's called an inverted population pyramid We're going to go from today having five people working for every one person retired to only having two-and-a-half people working for every one person retired. So then what would that mean? What do these trends mean in terms of revenues coming into the government and what does it mean in terms of spending on current programs? And you're absolutely correct. What What the report concluded was that if these current trends continue and, and this is a critical assumption, and if government policy does not change, then we're not headed towards a balanced budget anytime soon. However, uh, when Bill Morneau and Justin Trudeau look at this report, the first thing they say is, well, here's an assumption I don't agree with. And that assumption is that the economy, the Canadian economy, over the next 40 years is going to grow at an average rate of 1.7%. That's what it has been growing over the last seven, eight years since the recession of 2008, But that's not what the government wants. The government says why we're going to be going into deficit now and spending money on infrastructure is we want to get this economy to grow more at the rate of 3%. Well, if that happens, if if Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau is correct that their policy is going to get that kind of growth, then some of these doom and gloom scenarios go away. Similarly, if we remain aggressive with our immigration policy today, uh, into, into our country, we have about 0.6% of the population in immigrants every year, new people entering our economy. And the good thing about that is these people are younger, they get jobs, they support that older age uh, group. A third assumption, you know, what if we we just don't pay that much attention to age 65 as a retirement age? What if people continue working past that, meaning that some of their health care will be provided not by the government per se, but through uh, private sector pension plans or private sector funded plans, then, then the demand and the burden on the government would be different. So all it's saying in here is our current policies, barring any change, are not sustainable. So, okay, government, put your head together and start thinking, what kind of policies do you want to change to get us in a better spot for the year 2056?
1: Because, quite simply, uh, my understanding, my guess would be that uh, with a country of 36 million people, give or take, I don't know where we are exactly today, but in that ballpark, digging out from a $1.5 trillion debt would be, I don't even know how you begin to do that.
0: Well, so on the T word, uh, let me, let me. I'm, I'm, this is a night of shocks, so I'm sorry, sorry to share with you. Um, Today, right now, 2017, the total sum of government debt, that's the federal debt and all the provinces, is already $1.3 trillion. The federal debt is more like $700 billion. So it hasn't crossed the T threshold, and there is no one province, even Ontario, none of them have gotten to that point. But as as governments, we already owe $1.3 trillion. But here's even what's worse. If you add all of our private debt, your debt, my debt, credit cards, mortgages, uh, uh, car loans, what what have you, Canadians already owe, get this, Scott, $2.1 trillion. So this $1.5 trillion is a shock to your nervous system because you haven't seen it, but we're already in that kind of a Hmm. boat. So again, the question comes up, Do we want to put more water into the boat? Do we at least want to keep the current level where it is? Or really what we'd like to do is begin to bail some of that water out and reduce reduce those debt loads. Another reason we want to do that, by the way, is should we head back into some sort of an economic upheaval, another recession, we need some wiggle room in these budgets so that we could stimulate the economy then. If we're stimulating the economy in good times, then where are we going to find the money to stimulate the economy in bad times? So, again, what it's saying to the government is you've you've got to find something. So, really, government, here's what the bottom line is. Think about your policies in terms of doing whatever you can to stimulate the economy to grow. Now, this this is one point of view. Keep in mind, we've had a new tax imposed this year. This is the whole cap and trade, and we've talked about this before as well. That's not necessarily a good positive thing to do for the economy. But on the other hand, it's something really positive to do for the environment. And so the finance department gave you an economic look at the world, but then you have to balance policy there against, say, an environmental look at the world or a social and human rights view of the world. And that's the problem the government has. There's no one policy that wins on all of these. It's a balancing act. And these are the kinds of very difficult decisions that we ask our government leaders to do.
1: And when we start talking, though, and and I understand, I appreciate you bringing up all the all the debt that we have, because it just in case we weren't fully depressed or panicked enough. Now we talk about the fact that you tie the government debt and the private debt, and we're almost at three and a half trillion dollars in Canada. That's that's fantastic. Um, Scott,
0: on that point, you know, I I don't know if people do this exercise the way the government did. In other words, the government leaked this report on December twenty third, and yes, it's not happy news. But have people done this for themselves? Have you said to yourself, "Okay, here's the current debt I have now. Here's the rate at which I'm paying it off. Here's the various income streams I've got. What does that look like for me in five years, ten years, twenty years? What kind of money am I going to have to retire with?" And and the bottom. They should. They should. Most and most people don't. And so I give the government at least credit for doing this because they've realized kind of the mess they're in. But I think the average person doesn't realize just the kind of sacrifices you have to make, you've got to change
2: your behaviors.
1: It does, however, with leaving the, the, and what you say is absolutely true, but leaving the private sector alone for just a second, looking only at the public sector and the debt that we're talking about, what you're suggesting though, is that these can all be really interesting plans and we're going to grow the economy and this and that and the other, but it does require a leap of faith that the economy is going to continue to head in the right direction because if it doesn't, if it does, these numbers are maybe manageable and we can dig ourselves out of it. If it doesn't, then suddenly again, that, that uh, maybe it's just me. But when we start talking about debt with a number that begins with the letter T, I get nervous. I'll be honest with you, I do.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, just again, in fairness, a trillion dollars was the amount that the Americans were adding to their deficit every year, their debt every year in the last... Uh, Oh, eight years. Yeah, what are
1: they up to now, about 20?
0: Uh, no, I don't think it's quite that high. I think it's $14 trillion there, but they've been adding about a trillion a year, mostly due to about $3 billion a day they borrow to fight wars around the world, and so that's mostly going into defense spending. I, again, I'm not trying to minimize your concern. I think you're absolutely right. The other scary part of this, though, is that the success or failure of the Canadian economy does not completely rest on the government's shoulders. In other words, we rely on... America we rely on Europe we rely on China we export products we need to sell in these other markets so for our economy to be strong we need the rest of the world's economies to be strong and that's again why I think it was prudent for the finance department to do these projections on on rather poor assumptions in other words annual growth of 1.7% we didn't have that in the 70s in the 70s we had 3.1% growth in the 80s we had 3 point something in the in the 90s we had 2 point something so they've taken again sort of a worst case scenario. Now if if, and I know this is a gigantic if, but it's becoming a reality, two weeks to tomorrow, Donald Trump is inaugurated president. and if he can make America great again, he claims he can get the economy growing south of the border at three, four, five percent a year then some of that growth is going to percolate north of the border, and that 1.7% will look like somebody crying boo, you know, from behind a behind a pillar or something like that trying to scare us, because that number won't be that bad. But the reality is our economy has been mired in not zero growth, but low growth for the last eight years, The Conservatives took a stab at it, even Justin's taken a stab at it. The bottom line is we've done about all we can domestically. We now need the rest of the world to start growing properly, and then we'll catch on. So, you know, we have to watch. And I think for you and I and other viewers of all this, what you've got to do then is become a consumer of the news that comes out. Uh, Is it consistent with one scenario or another? So every time you hear about GDP numbers growing, Okay, is it at 1.7%, 2%, 3%? Where is it? Ah, oh, okay, that's above that. Okay, that's good news. When it's below that, oh, that's bad news. Uh, What's happening with our retirement rates? Oh, yeah, what's happening with our birth rates? What's happening with immigration? Immigration. If we get the right set of numbers, then this just becomes a worst case scenario plan. But if we get the wrong set of numbers, it tells you what we might be in for over the next 40 years.
1: Last thing, and you alluded to it already, this imbalance between people over 65 and under 15 who are the people who are going to be flowing into the workforce. Would I interpret that? Would I understand that then? If you have all these people who are over 65, and I'm assuming the general assumption with this is they are retired, they're not working, so they're drawing a pension or something else, that... Can you grow the economy if that many people are not working and are only taking out of the system?
0: Well, uh, the correct answer to that is you can, but it's very hard. And the only way to do it is to inject more younger people. It would be to have a more aggressive immigration policy. Right now, we take in about 280,000 people a year. Maybe we'd need to be taking in 400,000 people a year. I know this, again, comes as a shock to some people listening, but immigration is a net source of economic activity. It is not an economic drain on the economy. But that may be something we have to do, or turn it the other way around. Then maybe what we need to do is phase in retirement, have people not retire at 65, but, but begin to pull back, but not fully pull out until age 70, Remember, that was the plan the Conservatives had by raising the old age security payments from 65 to 68, was to incent you to stay in the economy a little bit longer before you became more of a drain on those resources. The Liberals have uh, reversed that policy, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but it has these kinds of implications.
1: Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, um, hoping that all the good news that you talked about and all the positive possibilities are the ones that flow through our country over the next 40 years uh, not the alternative but you know we shall see you and I you and I will both be well retired when this has to be dealt with 40 years from now 50 and you'll years be from now
0: raise B. Radley as you go Exactly forward. thank you Marvin always appreciate it Take care for now
1: Uh yeah you can read that piece it's at the spec.com it's a bunch of other places as well But yes we're we're now talking with the letter T for our debt possibilities trillion we're already at 700 billion so we're not that far away really but we're talking in the trillion, trillion, I'm going to say it again, trillion. That's a, l- I mean, I a billion dollars, a million I can't understand. I'm no, I don't have a million dollars. A billion is thoroughly unfathomable to me. A trillion dollars just, what is that? I mean, I know it's an extra number of zeros, but how do we, what is there in our life that we can even compare to, a trillion. I mean, we can even look at people who are millionaires and say, okay, a millionaire lives like this. That's what a million dollars is. And I suppose that we can point to a few people, the Warren Buffetts, the Bill Gates, and say, okay, there's a billionaire. That's what they live like. But we have no grasp of the concept of a trillion. I certainly don't. Maybe you do. Maybe mathematicians can visualize trillion things, things of trillions in their head and actually understand. I can't. That is so out of reach, so out of touch, so insane that for us to get into the trillions of dollars in debt blows me away. And I'm hoping and praying that that doesn't happen, that the economy takes the proper turn it's supposed to, because that's, I hate to think, I, I mean, I hate to think of what we would be leaving for our kids and our grandkids and the generation of those 15-year-olds who are coming into the workforce now who not only are going to have to support us as we get older and get retired, but then to try and pay off a debt that's in the trillions of dollars, that's thats baffling to me, absolutely baffling to me. We can't do that. We might be doing it, but we can't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. After high school, did you go off and go to university? Because if you did, you know that one of the things you had to do was spend tons of money, way more money than any reasonable amount should have been to buy textbooks. University textbooks, i got to be honest with you, biggest scam going as far as buying them in the bookstore. They're really, really expensive. So when you get them and then when you're done with them, you're sitting there going, well, what am I going to do with these now? Well, you've got some choices. One of them is you could try to sell them to somebody coming along, but the school always says you got to get the new ones because they're always updated. And so there's going to be something that's a little outdated, and you, you know it's you're worried. I don't know if I want to buy that one from that person because what if it's what if I miss anyway? You could recycle them, which seems like a waste of money. You could throw them out, which seems even worse. You could give them away, I suppose, although that's. Um, you know, if you're just giving it to some university student, again, you're saying, well, why are you getting these for free? But there is another option. There is another option that you have not considered yet for what you can do, a far better idea for what you can do or what your kids can do or what your grandkids can do or what your neighbors can do with their used old university textbooks, as long as they're not too, too old. Chris Jansen is the founder and CEO of Textbooks for Change, he joins me now. Chris, how are you this evening?
3: Good, how are you doing, Scott?
1: I'm doing really well, thank you. So take a second here, and you have this company called Textbooks for Change, an organization called Textbooks for Change, that you've got a better idea for something that people can do with their old used university textbooks. Take it away for 30 seconds. Tell us what you're going to do with them.
3: Yeah, we sure do. Um, So we uh, collect university and college textbooks um, from universities and colleges um, across Canada now, soon to be across North America. Uh, so we'll go through those books. Fifty uh, percent of the textbooks that come in uh, we'll send to university libraries we work with closely in East Africa. Thirty um, percent of those books uh, will be efficiently recycled if they're old and tattered. Uh, and we're a social enterprise, so actually 20 percent of the books that we do collect we sell back to students uh, at affordable prices across North America, and that really gives us the fuel to keep growing and, uh, and really optimizing our impact.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a terrific idea on a, on a whole bunch of levels. But let's let's go back right to the beginning. Where does this come from? What, how did you come up with the idea to do this?
3: Sure. So I was uh, in university. Um, I went to uh, business school at Western, um, and I really didn't fit uh, in with my surroundings. You know, a lot of students were you know full time recruiting, wearing suits every day. Um, you know, going after that you know big. A consulting, finance, banking job, and that you know that really just wasn't me. I, I wanted to give back in some way, but uh, you know I really had no idea what way that would be. Um, so when all my peers were going in, in full time recruiting, you know I, I felt a little bit lost. Uh, and after graduation, instead of going you know down a career path right away. You know, against my parents' wishes, I decided to uh, <laughs> you know take a trip to East Africa and max out that line of credit. So, uh,
1: was it like was uh, it a leisure, tri- a vacation trip or a working trip?
3: Um, so actually, part of the school, um, you know, Richard Ivy School of Business has a program that sends some students to East Africa, um, and they're allowed to. Um, um, lecture entrepreneurship um, to some students at university. So, you know, I saw this program. Um, you know, I thought it would it would be a great experience for me. So, I, I decided to pack my bags and uh, head up to Rwanda, which is a, a you know a totally different environment than I would see here. Um, and it was just you know an amazing experience. Um, you know, I would lecture um, about forty to fifty students every day on entrepreneurship, uh, and, and it was just so exciting to me. You know, growing up, I you'd hear stories of of um, you know the continent of Africa and you would hear about famine and corruption and all these bad things Uh, but when you go there you see something totally different you see these students that have the same hopes and dreams and aspirations as as students here in North America Um, and it's just you know very exciting for me but uh, you know once you dove a little bit deeper um, you know there wasn't Reliable internet for, for students to access, uh, information online. Um so they, you know, were very reliant on the library on campus. Uh, so, you know, visiting those libraries at the schools that I was at, um, you know, they had next to no materials. Old, tattered material, Um, often found students foregoing meals to make photocopies of, of old and tattered library books. Um so that was kind of, uh, you know, really the experience that pushed me to grow textbooks for change because I just graduated being a student and I had Twenty to thirty, almost brand new books that were just sitting at home collecting dust, and you know I wasn't going to use them again.
1: What do you remember the moment when you were over there that that light bulb went on and you put the two and two together?
3: Um, somewhat, yeah. You know, visiting the library and just seeing that, and it, it was just you know frustrating to see, um, you know, the lack of material, and I had that at back home. Um, and, and before I left, I was running a, you know a small project with textbooks. Um we, we were selling a portion and giving them back to Shineramos Ramos as a charity at the time. Um, so, you know, I, I really didn't connect the, the aspect of, of the need on that end until I went down. But, you know, that was really the light bulb when I was in that library in Rwanda.
1: So how easy, though, is it to get something like this going? Because even when you decide you're going to get involved with somehow getting textbooks to Rwandan university students... Uh, it still strikes me that it can't be all that easy to get them from here to there, and to get them in the first place, and to find the right ones, and all those kind of things. There has to be a huge challenge involved.
3: Yeah, there is. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of moving pieces to the whole thing, and it, it took us some time to to grow it up the, up off the ground. And you know, we are a social enterprise, so it is always balancing. You know, the impact for sustainability. We are a business. You know, we need to sell books to stay sustainable, um, but you know, you also have to be uh, you know, around that impact and that vision that you have there. So, um, you know, in the early days, it was it was really grinding it out. My uh, my co-founder, um, Tom Hartford, he uh, um, landed a big corporate job, or a uh, big finance job in Toronto. I, I convinced him to quit his job and live on couches and not get paid for six to eight months. Uh, i getting that off the ground, but, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, been a crazy experience.
1: So how do you know when you're doing this, then, and you're getting started, how, and for people who might want to, and we'll get to how they can do it in a minute, but if someone wants to give a book, how do you know what textbooks can be used? Because I can't imagine that every single course that's over here that we take, they would also use the same things over there. How do you find where the connections are?
3: For sure. So, you know, it it really is the power of the ground game. Um, So we, you know, have a a strong presence with our partners on the ground in East Africa. Um, You know, we had a member of our team spending, you know, Four to six months a year on the ground with those partners, and you know, as we grow, we're going to have actually someone full time on the ground in East Africa. Um, You know, it's really important to be down there to understand what material they're using, uh, you know, how often they're using it, you know, how the students rely on the material for their courses. Um, So, you know, by us living on the ground, we actually understand what they need, and we can, you know, take those lessons and bring that to our sorting process in our our fulfillment center. Uh, So, when books come in. Um, You know, we sort out the ones that are needed, um, the old and tattered books, you know, computer science or things that that change a lot over the last few years. We're not going to send those books, Um, you know, but then we'll sort them for, uh, you know, about four to six subjects and send them to the universities that actually need those books and require those books. Uh, And visiting on the ground, we can see that, you know, some of the books we're sending are the ones that they need and they're actually, you know, using in their library right now, even though they only have uh, a minimal amount of them.
1: And again, how often do they get sent over? Like, how often are you dumping a new chunk of books over there?
3: It's, it's whenever we have a, a crate full of books uh, ready to go. So um, we ship um, overseas. It takes about eight weeks. Um, so we have crates of about twenty-five to thirty thousand books, um, you know, uh, across uh, a lot of different subjects, and we'll send those over. So whenever we have a, a crate or two ready to go and the right partner in place, then we'll send one off. So. Actually, in uh, you know, within the next month or two, we'll be sending off about fifty thousand textbooks um, off to a few universities in Kenya.
1: Wow! Because I read on your website that it said that you had already reused and recycled two, and and that I mean, when you say reused and recycled, I mean also used, recycled not just by churning them up but sending them over there. Two hundred and fifty thousand textbooks, and I was thinking, there's no way you could have done two hundred and fifty thousand. But if you're doing them in fifty thousand batches, you probably could have.
3: Yeah. So 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 far uh, in in Canada alone, we've collected um, it, that number is actually around three hundred thousand now. Um, and with that, we sent uh, you know uh, soon to be one hundred and fifty thousand plus textbooks over to uh, universities in Sub Saharan Africa.
1: Okay, so how, how does this work then? I, I'm now, I've just graduated, or I have a d- child or a grandchild who's just graduated from university, and they've got these textbooks that are doing nothing. And I know this because when we cleaned out our basement a number of years ago, I found most of my university textbooks that I said, I better keep because someday I'll need these. And then, of course, never crack them open again. Uh, I won't actually admit that I probably barely cracked them open when I was at school in the first place, but nonetheless, I find these textbooks, I've got these lying around, I realize, finally, I am not going to use these. Chris, so what do I do with How do I get these to you?
3: Yeah, it's a similar problem that a a lot of students have. So um, we do collect textbooks uh, published within the last 10 years, Um, so usually recent editions uh, we're looking for. Um, But we have um, really Dropboxes located across Ontario. So uh, on our website, we have a map with all our Dropbox locations, um, and actually, one of our big partners we work with is uh, Goodwill Industries. So, um, you know, really any Goodwill across Ontario, you can bring those textbooks there and they'll end up in our hands.
1: And where and they go to a giant, do you have a warehouse or do you have a facility somewhere that you hold all these and sort through them?
3: Yeah, so there is, a, you know, like I said, a lot of pieces to the back end. But after those textbooks are donated, in the drop-ins, um, we'll aggregate, collect them to uh, our fulfillment center that we have in Hamilton uh, where we process the books, prepare our shipments, Um, sell the textbooks to students, uh, and that's where kind of all the moving pieces start to happen. And then we'll send those shipments off to East Africa uh, from the Hamilton warehouse as well.
1: Now, I've got to believe that one of the things that some people are thinking as they're listening to this is, okay, there must be subjects and study areas that are really in demand and other areas where really there's not much chance that they're going to be too interested in these books. Is that, is that true? Are there certain ones that are in huge, huge demand over in Africa? Topics, subjects?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk to our partners, it is really a threat of demand. Uh, but when you dive in, uh, medicine, um, you know, it is really a requirement engineering, um, definitely as well. But, uh, you know, really, it is across the board, and when you go down there and see that the material that you have, you can see that uh, you know anything and everything, you know, sent in the proper way and measured in the proper way um, is really needed.
1: Okay, so if I took that course in uh, early American filmmaking, however, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or the history of Madonna's music, probably those yeah. ones you could leave out, but it's the other stuff that are practical that you want.
3: Yeah, yeah. So that's where that uh, you know thirty percent recycle rate comes in. So <laughs> you know, if we get those. If we get older books, you know, Canadian income taxation and all those things that aren't going to be really usable in the environment, that's what we'll sort out there in, in our fulfillment center. I,
1: I don't know why I'm surprised, although I am kind of, I don't know why I'm surprised to think that the universities over there would use and be studying exactly the same thing. And not I, I'm not suggesting that they're not smart enough to be doing that. That's not it at all. It's just a different world. I, it just—it seems to me that they would have had entirely different curricula, but it sounds like no. It's—it's it's really very similar.
3: Yeah, and you would really be surprised, um, you know, visiting the libraries and, and seeing how the um, you know what's being taught there. That there is a lot of similarities between you know the classes being taught here and the classes being taught there. But you know that's why we have that ground game because it's, it's you know really helps us understand the environment and what they use. Um, and we actually have been finding that you know once we send the material to. Uh, the libraries first. Uh, you know, professors usually have first access to some of those books, um, so they'll go in, see the material that's available, and start to craft some of their curriculum around some of the material that that is sent and, and that the uh, students will have access to.
1: You've been over there. You you were over there when this whole thing spawned. Give me an example of what a typical university looks like or, or is like over in East Africa? Because it's, I mean, it's obviously not exactly the same as what we have here. Just, if you can, describe what a typical university is like.
3: Um, I would say it is comparable. You know, you know, even with the, with the students, you know, they want to be doctors, they want to be engineers, they want to go in computer science and, and all that stuff. So, you know, you do see a lot of similarities, especially in the subjects and, and how the classes are being taught as well. Um, but, you know, Looking a few steps further, that connectivity isn't there. Internet access is a little bit unreliable. You know, there isn't quite the materials to start to depend on um, and grow with. And, and, and down the road, you know, that may take changes. Uh, you know, digital alternatives come, but you can still see that there, there is going to be a gap um, over you know, the next five or ten years before that comes. Um, and you know, that's a gap we really want to be, be filling. And, and we also want to be a part of the future as well of, of how that digital transition happens.
1: Just before I let you go, um, you mentioned that this started in Rwanda, but you're not just in Rwanda anymore, correct?
3: Uh, no. So actually, we um, have shipments that we sent out to Ghana, Ethiopia, and Kenya. Um, so we, we saw that it is very important to kind of focus and really understand a specific region. Um, so that's why we, we, we chose East Africa for now. Um, but within the next you know year or two, we'll have shipments going throughout East Africa, so uh, you know, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, Rwanda, where where it all started, um, and Burundi, you know, that battle area there.
1: If somebody wanted to uh, be able to look you up uh, and find out where they could find a Dropbox or learn more about you or anything like that, what's the website? Where can they find you?
3: Yeah, so uh, textbooksforchange.com, and you'll find uh, all the information there. And, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, reach out if you're interested, interested in donating books, learning more, helping out. Um, You know, we're always recruiting for new people to uh, join our team as well. So, um, you know, right now it's a digital marketing coordinator. So if anybody knows anyone uh, in that uh, domain, definitely tell them to apply.
1: Chris Jansen, the founder and the CEO of Textbooks for Change. Really good idea, Chris, and uh, glad you're doing this. Thanks for taking the time today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Take care.
1: Uh, That is Chris Jansen. Uh, Again, textbooksforchange.com. Even if you don't have any textbooks lying around. I would encourage you to go and look at this website because it's it's really interesting what they're doing. There are some case studies here. There's some testimonials of people who have benefited from this over in Africa. There are some numbers here of, of how many books and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's a well-done website. And the idea is great. Let's be honest. The idea is great. I, I wasn't being funny. I wasn't being um, untruthful when I said that for years all my university textbooks and my wife's were sitting in our basement because when university was done, we just assumed that someday down the road, as we got into our career, that there would be a need for us to have those textbooks. That someday I was going to be at work and saying, oh, you know what? That class 20 years ago had something in it that I remembered that I needed to find. And come on. How many of you have ever actually, if you've kept your textbooks, how many of you have ever actually gone back and cracked open that textbook again? I bet the number is under 1%. You just don't do it. You think you should. You think these textbooks are important and heaven knows you've paid enough for them that you feel you shouldn't throw them out. So here's your chance. You don't have to throw them out. You don't have to feel guilty. You can actually do something really positive and really helpful and use those textbooks in a way that somebody will crack them open and use them again and they don't just collect dust. And if you have a flood in your basement, it's not just more weight to carry out that's waterlogged, <laughs> which which ultimately is the biggest thing. Uh textbooksforchange.com is the name of that website. Go take a look at it. You're listening to the Scott Radley show, weeknights from 7 to 9
3: on AM 900 CHML.
1: So I am a guy. I I love I love Music. I listen to music pretty much all day long, as much as I can, anyway. Not when I'm writing, not when I'm working per se, but if I'm in the shower, I have music going. If I'm in the car, I certainly have music going. If I'm sitting at home, I'll probably have music going. I love music. But my idea of moving forward with music, for me, I have most of the music I listen to on my iPhone. What isn't on my iPhone is being streamed through my iPhone. Sometimes I'll listen to, well, often I'll listen to the radio if I'm in the car. If I'm at home, I'll have the radio on sometimes. But very rarely in our basement, we have a box of vinyl records. We haven't touched those in years. Because that to me is sort of old school now. Now we're into the modern age. But I tell you what, vinyl is making a huge comeback. Vinyl is suddenly hot. Everybody, it seems, or at least a lot of people, want to get their hands on vinyl. Vinyl records are the new old thing. Well, join me to talk about this, to help me understand this. A guy who is a real aficionado of the whole vinyl record thing. We'll talk about that in just a second. But he's also, he's got another claim to fame around here that will make him familiar to you, even though you probably won't know his name. Mark Panopoulos is also the guy, if you stick around on 900CHML and listen to all the old radio shows that come on, he's the guy who produces those. He's the guy who puts all those together. So if you're a fan of those, Whether or not you love vinyl records, this is the guy that you want to thank and be listening to. But we're talking records today, and Mark joins me. Mark, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing all right. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. So as I was saying, I love listening to music, but it's never dawned on me, at least in recent years when technology has advanced, that I want to have my music on vinyl, and yet you and other people, there's a lot of people apparently right now who just absolutely love the idea of getting vinyl records. Why? What is it about it that's attractive in these, day, in these days?
2: Well, I think it's, there's two things to it. Uh, you know, one of them is obviously with the collection of records, it's going to be worth something in years to come. And uh, I think that people want to get back to saving something and having something to pass down towards their families. You know, towards their kids or whatever, and, um, and uh, having something that's worth something to, to, to have. And the other one, I guess, is just to have something in your hands and to feel, and something that um, you want to have a connection with the person who recorded it somehow, even if they have passed away, or if they're still, uh, they're still with us, but they're making vinyl again.
1: So it seems real, as opposed to, say, a digital thing on your phone.
2: Right. I think so. I, I think the excitement of having music come through the air uh, into your phone is, is not what it used to be. I think uh, it's, it's tangible. It has something to do that uh, people have got to feel it somehow.
1: Have you always been a record guy? Is this something that you've collected and liked forever, or are you back to it?
2: Oh, yeah. It's been something that I've always been connected to, I think, ever since the, the mid-70s. Um my cousin had eight-track tapes, and uh, they were of the Moody Blues and Elton John. And uh, then I started to buy records on my own because I had a chance to experience uh, listening to some of those great artists back then. And then when Elvis died, well, that's when I discovered rock and roll. That's when something came alive to me. That was the
1: real magic. But it's always been records for you. That, that's been the medium you've always gone to. Yeah. Any idea how many records you own right now? Vinyl <laughs> records? No,
2: not really. Give me a guess. Give me
1: a wild guess.
2: Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe um, a couple of thousand, 45 wow. smaller records, but uh, maybe um, 5,000 albums, maybe, maybe more. I, I have never really um, thought even to, to count.
1: Well, when you've got that many, who has time? That's right, <laughs> <laughs> but you, but the thing that I find fascinating about this, Mark, is that and, and you know there are collectors. I understand that there are people, no matter what the thing is, whether it's records like you have or Barbie dolls or whatever, people collect things. So there's always going to be collectors, but there seems to be an awful lot of people who are coming back to vinyl now, or or maybe they've been doing it all along and they just didn't actually admit it because it seemed old school or something. But you're not alone in this
2: no um like i, I help out at uh, at a record store and i see young people coming in all the time uh asking for stuff like johnny cash basically and uh traveling wilburys and stuff maybe that their parents grew up with and uh or they want to hear new bands that are on vinyl and i i think like i said it's just that tangible type of Feeling that they, they feel that maybe they're closer to the artist somehow. At least that's how I feel, and that's how I've always felt that so, you know, I've had some sort of interest in uh, this singer that's uh, put his heart and soul into singing and performing.
1: Okay, and Mark, when you said a minute ago that you had become interested in rock when Elvis died, we're talking 1977, I believe, wasn't it? 19, something like that, 76, 77, when Elvis died? So that gives us some indication of your age. So you were, though, of the age when records would have been part of your life. But you're also talking about there are people, as you described, coming into a record store who are younger than that, who would have never been exposed to vinyl in their past. They are coming to it new. That is that surprising to you?
2: It is, because for, for a number of years, I didn't see a, a lot of young people coming into that store. Um, it, it wasn't really like that. A lot of people don't even collect some of the stuff that I personally like to enjoy and listen to, uh, but they do go back at least 20 years, maybe to some of the alternative sounds of the 90s or um, some of the people who are are in the music business for a long time, but have recently passed away.
1: So let me go to this again, because this is the part that fascinates me. We... We, in our modern world, we have computers and I don't see anybody clamoring to go back to the typewriter and we have cell phones and I don't see anyone saying, I'd love to go back to the day when you had to dial up an operator and connect and they, she would connect you to someone else. There are many things in our life that technology has simply bypassed and we have left them in the past quite happily. And you've described it pretty well about the, the connection to vinyl that we have, but Is the sound, if nothing else, is the sound of vinyl not scratchier and cracklier than digital or CD? I mean, the sound is much purer on those, isn't it?
2: Uh, On vinyl, you mean?
1: No, on CDs or on... CD,
2: it's pure. Oh, I I don't know um, if you can read, like there's aficionados out there, maybe more stronger than my point of view, that say that uh, the CD sound is better than the vinyl sound. But I I think uh, the attraction is... That maybe people like to hear the few crackles and pops and actually see how the record is spinning around on the turntable as, as they play it. And the actual operation of taking the record out of the cover and putting it on the turntable and playing it, I think that's a, a fascination. There's
1: something simpler about it for sure.
2: Yeah, and we get involved in it. We can actually see how it works rather than just something that is there and we don't know how it got there.
1: Is part of the fun of this having to go and, if again, if I want to get something digitally, if I want a song or an album digitally, I go onto my iPhone and within 30 seconds I can type in the name and it's there and I press a button and I buy it and I own it with records you have to go to the stores and they're dusty and they're old and they're maybe not perfectly organized and you have to dig around and flip through the album covers there is a there is an activity involved in finding records as well
2: yeah i think that is it uh, it's it's fun going through that uh, you know a few years back people were going through the attics of their grandparents and finding records and they would find a record player and you know, they, they think, oh, gee, how silly this is, like some kids, right? And they would uh, think, oh, here's that strange song, Mr. Jaws, or let <laughs> Go Duck, or something. And they would think that that's what their parents really listened to and really liked. And then they all of a sudden discovered that there was a lot of great, serious, rock and roll music out there, or even other types of music, country, or something like that, that really uh, had feelings and emotions that um, connected with uh, young people, and I think that's that's what's happening.
1: Mark, is there a big online market for this, or is it still the idea of going to the record store and buying the record there in person and having it in your hands?
2: Well, there is an online because uh, there is an online um, connection because... Like I said, I, I think that there's people that want to collect um, new bands, their vinyl, their vinyl works that are out there, and uh, they'll have it for their own personal collection that they can pass down to their kids, and they'll try to take care of it, even if it's a reissue of, uh, of a Led Zeppelin album or something like that, uh, or, or um, something that's classic anyways. It's out again. It's thicker vinyl, and to to even though a lot of people prefer the original vinyl, uh, there's people that like uh, the new ones and say this is thicker, this is uh, it'll last longer, and uh, like the grade of the vinyl that is, and, and um, you can get better sound out of it, and the you know the technology of turntables has gotten a lot better over the years too.
1: I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you, so there are companies, there are record companies these days, many of them, most of them maybe, that are coming out with vinyl versions of certain albums. Do the collectors like those, or is it mainly the old stuff they're going after? Would you ever buy a brand new, newly released album, or are you, as a diehard, serious collector, only interested in the old stuff?
2: Oh, I I go for both, because there are lots of new bands out there. That have that old sound. <laughs> That's what I've always uh, liked about uh, a lot of the music. You know, I prefer a lot of great old rock and roll, but there's lots of new bands that have that great old rock and roll sound. So I'll go after those bands too that like to put out vinyl.
1: We just got a minute or so left here, but it it does have to be. And I'm trying to remember when I, I mean, I was a kid when I used records last. It, and there is uh, something involved in in keeping these in good shape because they can warp, they can get wet, they can get scratched. There's a lot of work involved in keeping a collection in good shape, though.
2: Yeah, I, uh, that's an, that's another thing too. Um, it keeps <laughs> sort of say, let's keep the kids out of mischief type of thing, or off the streets where parents are buying their kids record players, or uh, and buying them records too around Christmas time. But also, um, let's say the kids want to buy something for their parents. So when the parents have gotten rid of all their records and their record player, this is like, hey, I'm giving you something back that uh, you would really enjoy and give you a trip back to your uh, childhood or to your teenage days of going out and partying and having a good time. And I think even kids want to give that back to their parents and something for them to enjoy.
1: It is interesting. I'm. I'm. I got to tell you. Yeah, I, I have a hard time with the idea of it. Not that I'm against it. I just it to me. It's uh, maybe I'm just so busy, but it seems so convenient to just be able to put it on the phone. And yet, I understand completely that the you know collectors like yourself, there's something much more tangible and much more hands-on to it that is um, that is enjoyable. Mark Panopoulos, I, re- I appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
2: Oh, any time. I, I you know I appreciate it when. Um, somebody starts to talk to me about it, especially, uh, you know, the store that I help out with, and they come in, they wonder why, too, that they're even into it.
1: (laughs) Well, how many stores are there in Hamilton, by the way, as we let you go, that actually sell records these days?
2: Oh, not very many, but, uh, well, six or seven of them, and maybe that is enough. Um, You know, there's uh, antique stores that have records. Uh, There might be more of them, but uh, just ones that uh, concentrate on records, I'd say a good six or seven
1: of them. Mark Panopoulos, uh, thanks for your time today. I think, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you. Uh, I, As I say, I, we have a bunch of records in our basement. You know what, I'll tell you what, of all the records we have in our basement, I remember as a kid, my parents went over to the Soviet Union. In fact, they went for the 1972 Summit Series. They went with Team Canada. There was a travel... There was a trip that went from Canada. It was, amazingly, it was not all that expensive to go to Russia for that hockey series. Mostly because Russia wasn't very fancy and nobody, if you recall, nobody expected the Russians to put up much of a fight in the hockey series. It was going to be an eight-game Canadian sweep back in 1972, so who really cared about going to watch the hockey? My parents, though, went over. They signed up way before it started because if it had been offered after the series started, it might have been very expensive. But... They went over, they signed up before, and when they came home, they brought with them, brought home a 45 of the Soviet National Anthem. You know, the one that's like, it, I still think it's one of the greatest, most stirring national anthems in the world. I'm not, I'm not lobbying for the Soviet Union. I'm just saying the anthem was fantastic. And I remember listening to that on the 45 when they came home. They played it a bunch of times. Other than that, all the records that we've got sitting in the basement, I can't remember the last time we put one onto a record player. I don't even know if I still have a record player in the house. You can buy them now. Here's the great thing, though, about record players. I saw this when I was looking through one of the electronic store Boxing Day sales. You can actually buy now record players with a USB port so you can play the thing and turn the music into a digital feed So you can take it on your iPhone, which seems to defeat the purpose. I I suppose if the whole idea is to have records, it seems kind of silly to just put it onto your phone. That's against the whole point, but they're out there. There's a huge amount of demand all of a sudden for vinyl. People want to go back in time a little bit. They want to feel the record in their hands. They want to hear the crackly a little bit, maybe just have that sense that they're back in their childhood or they're back to their youth when when records were what we listened to. And if you hear the a little bit, it, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's kind of a nice thing. It's a throwback. It's like a, a familiar smell or a or some, a familiar taste that takes you back to another time. Maybe that, that crackling and that hissing a little bit with the record, is that's what it's all about. But they're out there for sure. Lots of demand for records right now. Who knew? Who would have guessed that 10 years ago? If you had said 10 years ago, Big demand was going to be for vinyl records. People would have thought you were goofy. Instead, you would have been prescient.
0: The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM
2: 900. AM 900 CHML.